I'm Adam Rappaport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. This week, we've got Nancy Singleton Hachisu here. Uh, she is the author of the James Beard Award-nominated books, Japanese Farm Food and Preserving the Japanese Way. Uh, Nancy grew up in California, traveled to Japan for a, you know, like a stint abroad. And, well, while there, she met a Japanese farmer, fell in love, and 30 years later, she's still there. Uh, her most recent book is Japan the Cookbook, a gorgeous, comprehensive book that came out last month. And associate editor Christina Che sat down with Nancy to talk about this latest work, a massive volume that includes over 400 recipes. All right, so let's do this. Here is Christina and Nancy. I, I don't know how often you get a chance to actually come back here um, to the States, but do you have a particular restaurant or a food that, you know, when you come back, you're just like, I have to get this because I can only get it here? Um, you know, it's the food I, w- I would want is something that I'd have to buy, like I, I, I sausages, um, saucis, or, or salumi, but I actually don't really buy salumi anymore. Um, and um, pretty much that's the only thing that I could, oh, oysters. Mm. Really good oysters, mm. crab. And so those are not oysters or restaurant crab, typically home or restaurant. So it just depends. Um, but restaurant-wise, I look for something fairly simple but delicious. Like I, I am a big fan of Renard's, and I, of course, love Chez Panisse. I would imagine oysters, and I, I'm surprised. I, I would imagine that oysters and crabs are actually... Not, um, not good. No. no. <laughs> if you, I mean, oysters, in Japan, the history of eating oysters was the oysters were harvested and they were shucked and sold already shucked, mm-hmm. which is one reason why the Kumamotos went by the wayside, because the um, the Hiroshima oysters and Miyagi oysters are like probably four, five, six times as big as the Kumamotos. And so it took a lot more to shuck Kumotos to, to fill up a box than Hiroshima, but they're bringing those back. And then crab, it's just you it's, you cannot find live crab. And you, Dungeness crab is one of the greatest crabs <laughs> in the world, I think. And so, you know, when I go to California, I eat crab when I can. It's so funny. I mean, there's a there's a part there's a part of my brain that really when I think about crab and I think about the way that I experienced a lot of sort of very westernized. Japanese food it's like all I can think of is the the fake crab red oh, and white yeah, sticks yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and I'm like horrible. you know is this even is this what is this right, right. <laughs> it's what is it made from um a cod or something yeah you know I've, I've always been too scared to read the back of that package <laughs> don't don't bother yeah. um, so okay so your book which is gorgeous and I have in Thank front you. of me um this is your third cookbook yes right published by Fiden, came out at the beginning of April. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that obviously I feel like we have to talk about is, you know, the fact that this is a cookbook that represents the breadth of an entire country's cooking, uh, whereas your previous two books were more sort of niche topics. You know, you focused on farm food mm-hmm. in one and focused on preserved foods in one. And, you know, I guess I'm just sort of wondering what the biggest difference is in thinking about how to approach a cookbook that addresses a scope that's just so much bigger. Right. Well, all cookbook projects, or probably all projects, they take shape organically. You start with this framework idea, and you work towards 
what your idea of the framework should be, but along the way, as the material comes in or as it sort of gels, then it takes shape. And here with this book, I knew it was a huge project. And um, I normally, my other publisher was Andrews McMeal, was my first time at Fiden, and I was a little bit scared. <laughs> I didn't want to miss deadlines. Uh, I was six months late with a preserving book. So <laughs> this was not going to happen with Fiden. So I, um, I started working immediately before, I, I mean, we had had the agreement, an oral agreement for the contract before I even had the contracts. I started because I knew I could not waste any time. And I split up the country um, in areas where I knew a chef that I had connected with. And, I'd, and uh, even if his food was not going to end up in the book, he would be the conduit for me to get further into that local area. And most of those local areas, local areas I already had artisanal contacts, food artisans. So um, that was how I first approached it. And uh, I started traveling. Over the course of the project, it took a shift because all of the material that I gathered and photographed while traveling, um, it shifted off because of, you know, there's the publisher's ideas and my ideas and we weren't meshing there. And so the photographs material was set aside and now it's going to be a different book. And then it became, um, along the way, I found this body of material, these 70s, 80s, body of material that became the book. And so, yes, it's a compendium of Japanese food, but can you really say that these 400 recipes are all of the food in Japan? It's, and is it, you know, like, is the food today the same as that? And do you want to write about the food today? Sure. I mean, and I think that was also something that really struck me that I didn't know about this book before I started reading it was that it really is, uh, you know, it captures a very particular moment in the history of Japanese cooking. And, you know, I think the way that you describe in the book is sort of this relative area, this relative time period of prosperity in mm -hmm. the 70s and 80s, where you're kind of a few decades away from the post-war era. Right. And, you know, I just, as someone who, you know, truly knows very little about what was going on sort of in the way that people were starting to cook at home in this more luxurious way. You know, I just thought that was really interesting and I was hoping that you could talk more about what defined the cooking of that time and what felt well, right about it for now. It's something that I, I came at, I mean, I'm not the expert and, and or historical expert and it's something that I came to intuitively. Uh, I, I arrived in 88 and already the food was changing. Like um, it was a normal thing to when you invited somebody to your house, you might have a few homemade things, but you would definitely get some some sort of delivery thing. And you know, one of the first meals I had at somebody's house had homemade chirashi sushi on the table and then Kentucky Fried Chicken, you know, <laughs> which I avoided. <laughs> but um, I just through the eyes of these cooks and through this material, and this is mainly through two women, it was Japanese out-of-print books, and I knew both women, um, one fairly well, and the other one I had met her several times and had attended food confabs um, with where she was the main cook, and she was like a, an 80, 
she must be 88 now, um, very powerful, tall, but gentle woman, had a, and she was a very legendary um, cooking teacher in, in the north of Japan. And um, I did record her um, on the iPad and the iPhone, and I video and, and recording, sound recordings and notes and photos. But then I discovered that of the two Japanese language cookbooks that I really loved and that my my son, who works for me, who's, who's got a great palate, um, he also loved. We shared, the, the, we both zeroed in on, independently on these two books, that that was our two favorite books. And so they became the unifying force um, for the whole book. And um, then I just went and picked up from other books that I had previously looked at. These were written in English, some by gaijins, the foreigners, non-Japanese, and some by Japanese ladies. Um, and again, it's it was all sort of out-of-print books that I had collected over the years, and I thought they were just a little bit dated, and I didn't ever use any of the ideas in my other two books. But I went back to them with these eyes. And sometimes you can, if you look at it differently, then, wow, there's a, yeah, this is kind of dated, and I see they put some a little strange substitutions in, but I can fix this. And so, um, and it's actually, it's, you know, you cannot find good recipes in, Jap- in Japanese on the internet. You get cookpad or out-of-print books. Those are your, your options. And you, uh, cookpad? It's like Yelp or recipes. It's everybody oh, contributes. And so you can Google, uh, I mean, you, yeah, so you can Google this one classic recipe, like oh, even Nikujaga, right? And so easy peasy Japanese recipe. And you'll get up all these bizarro variations and they have nothing appealing about them for me. So I'm looking for something really classically classic. And is that just because there isn't really a f- there isn't really a focus on a particular type of cookbook, you know, that is being published in Japan in Japanese and you know is for that audience? Yeah, you know, um, cookbooks in Japan, they're they're almost like magazines. Mm. They're thin paperback by and large not and they're um they're they're there are very few books like this like we have in america these thick pictorial books so would it be would that just be an unusual thing to find in someone's home you know a oh, thick yeah. bound books Co- like this one it's, that would be like a um say a very well-known chef book it'd be coffee table slash I mean, it's just not a thing so much. You wouldn't really find it in people's houses. Is there any kind of like seminal cookbook, I guess for lack of a better word, that you might find in, in many homes that, I, you know, is sort of treated like a, a Bible of sorts? Not that I've ever come across. You know, there's a lot of there's space issue. You know, it's just like everybody lives in a small apartment in New York, but there's in Japan, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's a space issue for food, for cooking equipment, books. It's a magazine culture and a small book culture. You know, most of the reading books, like all of my husband's or, or son's books, they're, I mean, they're smaller than our paperbacks and they're thinner. And we've got, I feel like there are millions. <laughs> <laughs> they're like a fungus all over the house. But of course, I love books. They're like, but they're for me, they're like deco- decorations, stacks of Japanese books all over, <laughs> along with my stacks of cookbooks. So. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, you know, I, I, li- I live in a small New York apartment and somehow there's always <laughs> there's always room somewhere. Right, it's like right, in the right. closet or, you know, on the floor, you know. Stairway. I mean, 
yeah, saw the book sh- on the windowsill. You know, I, right. uh, books are just spilling out of everywhere. Right, right, right. And but they're pretty. They're pretty, yeah. and they're not a problem no. yet. <laughs> the way that you describe the book in in the introduction is, um, I, I feel that you really emphasize that this is not really an examination of the various regional cooking traditions within the country, and I think. I, I thought that was sort of interesting and I wasn't sure if, you know, the fact that there is less regionality than you might expect is just a product of the larger effect of globalization or if it is just, you know, a different, you know, it's just a different way of cooking and of exchanging information about cooking. Yeah, I mean, originally, like I said, I was separating the country in basic regions and at that time, I realized more and more, and I, I had to, I struggled with what to do with Okinawa or Hokkaido. And, you know, and I had, um, uh, I mean, travel in Japan is expensive, and, and, and this is something the authors pay. And so I had to make decisions, and with, and I had to concentrate on the main island and then Kyushu. Mm-hmm. And um, I also didn't want anybody to feel slighted, I mean, any area. Right. And so, and... There's a lot of similarities, you know. Everybody's making kimbira, uh, like the the sautéed, uh, which is one of my favorite things. Yes, soy, soy sauce, soy sauce sautéed, stir fried, um, you know, burdock or or carrot or or whatever actually. Um, and there's, you know, there is a variation in households. There's variations in some region regions certainly, but it's not as, and there's regional dishes, but mainly the biggest differences in the regions that you can see, boom, right off the bat, is in the mountain vegetables. And everybody kept saying, you got to come back in the spring in the mountain vegetables, which we don't have in America or in the EU. I was going to say, when you say mountain vegetables, like, you know, what sorts of... Ah, well, you know, it's like um, city, the wild parsley, or udo. It's like a kind of... it's, It's a stem thing and and fuki and um basically nothing you would be able to find no, here and, in the in the most well-stocked not, farmers it's, it's market. A bitter bitter they're bitter there's so many of them and again it's regionally oriented and i've discovered ones that i had not known about um um on my travels but um the only one that we really have would be fiddlehead ferns you know and so i didn't want to keep putting in all these focus on a whole subset of of foods that or, or that, that that was not available right you know? right so anyway it went along and I've just felt like um, uh, separating the book by type of cooking the the, the tr- classic cooking method was going to be better and then actually um, the material s- sort of was Became, I was gathering it in a non-regional fashion. And so it covered um, many regions, but, and there's definitely local foods, but, you know, not all, we call it kyodo ryori. Kyodo ryori is regional foods, and not all kyodo ryori is delicious. Mm. Like, a lot of it is not so appealing, frankly. <laughs> so this is really delicious, and it, it, it bright, uh, lots of knife work, actually. It takes some time for the prep. 
um, really pretty food, um, clear flavors, some shojin uh, so temple food influences, but definitely not, you know, it's not a vegetarian book, or a, uh, but it's got a lot of vegetarian uh, friendly recipes. You can just take out the fish or take out the meat, mm-hmm. um, which is how I like to eat. I mean, I do like meat and fish, but I'm kind of a fanatic for vegetables. Sort of meat and fish as the accessories. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that's, I mean, the history of Japan is, is you know, vegetarian mm-hmm. and dairy, I mean, actually vegan. It's funny. I mean, I can just, in flipping through some of the recipes, and you mentioned the knife work, th- that was kind of all I could think about in yeah. certain photographs where, I mean, you know, I, I have worked as a, as a restaurant cook before, mm-hmm. and you know, I think you learn certain things in that experience about how certain vegetables are cut and how long a certain julienne or a, julienne an oblique in this one. takes. And <laughs> yeah, and I, I was just like, this is all matchstick carrots. Right. You know, and I was just like, you know, I mean, it would be slow. It would be slow enough it's process really for slow. me. It is slow. And, yeah. you know, I used to have to do piles and piles of them. Right, right, right. But, I mean, I do think it is one of, to, to me, that's always seemed to be one of the most interesting hallmarks of Japanese cooking is this the way they distinguish between different knife cuts and the Mm -hmm. way those knife cuts truly do seem to affect the entire composition or almost the flavor Mm -hmm. of these vegetables in a dish has always been like so amazing to me right and I'm you know I'm not going to say I'm the best you know knife work person knife cutter or whatever um but uh yeah, the, one of the things when we've done a lot of collaboration dinners and it, the the getting in the weeds situation is because of the underestimation um, of how long the knife work will take. <laughs> so the veg prep is, is um, but it's very centering, you know. I mean, when cutting julienne carrots when you're really in a hurry is a little bit frantic. Do you do, uh, do you use a mandolin? Never. Never. Ever, ever, ever. I hate that fascinating idea it's uh, i mean i I, I want the human element (laughs) i um you know i I feel like the the you know the ben reiner green or the white mandolins you know it's they're becoming you know they're they're just kind of becoming a huge thing right now i think in a lot of home kitchens here right and you know certainly we have been huge proponents of them you know we're all the test kitchen editors you know have one and I have one at home that I use all the time, and there are certain things that I can't imagine. It's a soulless cut. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, you know, I never, I kept reading in Gourmet. Uh, they talked about the Ben Reiner for years, and then in all your magazines, you know. Um, and I was like, what is this thing? And I finally, when I was writing Preserving Book, I went out and bought one. And then I, I was for the for making um, the dried daikon, uh-huh. and I cut the tip of my finger off, and I was like... <laughs> Because <laughs> I was super busy and I was like, Arr. but uh, no, I don't like the cut. Do you think most? Uh, do you think most other Japanese homes are not employing oh, mandolin? Or I'm sure they happily are. <laughs> <laughs> but in our house, we never had one. Um, we were a farm kitchen, and um, my hu- my husband's a master with a knife, and so he was doing all the Japanese food, and then I was doing all the rest. But um, now it's a little bit of a rivalry in the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, I do like my food better. Um, he likes his food better. <laughs> One thing that I really wanted to talk to you in particular about, and this is something that 
I find I often have conversations with friends about, you know, at home and such. But it's basically this idea of this ongoing Western almost obsession or reverence for these traditional Japanese culinary traditions. And to me, I think as someone who works in the food media and is part of a, you know, a machine that is coming up with recipes that, you know, are, are, are pushing trends forth or however you want to phrase it, you know, it does feel like increasingly there are certain Japanese ingredients like miso or mirin or dashi or, you know, what have you that just feel like they're becoming much more ubiquitous in mm-hmm. lots of different recipes mm-hmm. than they've ever been, certainly in the time that I have been alive. And there are recipes that we will publish. You know, I'm thinking about one that we ran a few months ago, and it was for a a miso cilantro pesto was what we called it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I remember was, that one. I, I do notice them. I, I don't read a lot of emails, but I always sort of check the the headline. You know, <laughs> it was. Um, I mean, it was it was incredibly de- delicious. It was just blended spinach and cilantro and mm-hmm. some miso and what kind of miso? Uh, it was white miso, I believe. Um, <laughs> that face, um, and everything just gets blended together and tossed with some cooked uh, noodles um, and a little bit of butter and. The faces that you're making at me right now are so amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess, you know, it's just how, how do you feel about how do you feel about all of this? Well, <clears throat> <clears throat> well, um, if you read the historical chapter, what drove that in some way was my feeling that a lot of these ingredients are being used without truly understanding them. And um, just like Japanese use Western ingredients that they don't really understand. They do love, they do seem to love ketchup. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And mayonnaise. (laughs) Right. And so um, I I know there's this huge love affair. And I know a lot of people are coming over to Japan physically, you know, visiting and gathering your materials. And I see it on the menus. I mean... I don't really eat out too much of my, my, I've got my places, but I was involved in a Jap- Japan brand project and I was coming with this, this, our local soy sauce and miso people and, um, and uh, vinegar and sesame and tried to go to a few restaurants that were using Japanese ingredients and some were doing it better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and my biggest uh, recommendation and something I'll pass along to you guys too is get the best and just because maybe your readers or maybe this restaurant can't actually source those themselves, they don't want to spend the money, or it's not economically feasible in the restaurant, but learn from the best. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm there's people people who are involved in fermentation or like like the miso people. I was traveling with the the, the daughter of the family, and she's the president of the sales, and um, and. She's, when I asked her about white miso and she looked at me, she goes, I hate that. I never use that. <laughs> it has no flavor. <laughs> and actually, I never used it ever until I was testing for this book. I, 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 I tried to be, I wanted to be true to the Kansai, that area's food. And so I did test using white miso, but it was. But you're not happy about it. Oh, it's, you know, <laughs> if you use inaka miso, it's, which is a fermented miso with white rice koji. No, it's not as sweet as the white miso, but the white miso has like, I mean, minimal 
fermentation. You almost can't. So it doesn't have the properties of miso. It doesn't mm-hmm. have the good properties of miso or enough of them, in my mind. It doesn't have the, I hate the word umami, but it doesn't have that either. And so I think that you can f- you can round out that inaka miso, which is perhaps a little bit harder to find here, with a beautiful meeting, mirin, and then you're not going to achieve the same thing, but also I use, you know, farm vegetables, whether it's our farm or my friend's farm. And so those are really um, powerful tasting ingredients Mm -hmm. and they need to be flavored with powerful tasting uh, flavorings. So they, they fuse together. Right. It's inter- I mean, that's interesting to think about, too. I'm sure, you know, you take, like, a, an ordinary, like, a supermarket carrot. Yeah. And... And then that the supermarket carrot likes wheat, white miso. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Give it to him. <laughs> and also, just to speak about... Just I'll circle back to dashi. You know, we use hongare dashi, uh, hongare katsubushi. So it's skipjack tuna that's not just been simmered and, and smoked, but it's also been fermented and sun-dried for six months. Mm-hmm. And everything in the package here is just been simmered and smoked. So it's not doesn't mean it's bad at all. But um and we used to use it when we stopped shaving and then I didn't even know my husband was buying the packs and I didn't know it was not the the real deal or the the all the way to the fermented and sun dried. And then when I met the Katsubushi guy and I heard that I we went back. There must be kind of a balancing element too. I mean if you're using, let's say, the fermented and sun dried version of a katsubushi and you're using you know a relatively uh like a relatively low quality um or more diluted version of let's say like i don't know soy sauce or a mirin or something like it it does seem like that might result in a totally different yeah i mean flavor maybe not totally different but dialed back in some way and so i mean i mentioned this in the book and it might not you know it's it's in one small place but I do recommend, you know, finding your level and sticking with that level. And there's nothing wrong with that. Not everybody can, you know, pour all their resources and go broke <laughs> on the food. <laughs> but um, you're going to want to pair the more full-flavored artisanal products with each other mm-hmm. and then the mid-range with each other. Mm-hmm. And then if you're, you know, if, if the lower range is what you can afford, in most Japanese, that's what they use, you know. Mizukan vinegar, kikoman soy sauce. Ajinomoto, maybe aji mirin. The aji mirin is what I have at home. Oh my god, that's <laughs> not even, I'm throwing this at you now. It's not even mirin. Oh my god. Oh, what can I say? It's, it's what we had in my house growing, growing up. up. You know, it's the only thing I've ever known. I know. It's um, not mirin. It's not mirin. <laughs> I don't know that you're gonna love this question, but you know, it, it, is there one sort of key core ingredient where if you had to really encourage someone to spend the money, get the best version of this one product, whether you're talking about miso or sesame oil or so, uh, soy sauce, you know, is there is there one where it feels like if you're really going to spend your money on this one thing, it should be this? It's soy sauce, actually. And and um, I uh, talk about it in Japan because, you know, most people use kikomon. Um, my, my brother-in-law works for them, <laughs> but I mean, they do a good. They 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 do I a good job. Yeah, but it will change your life. And this happened with me with olive oil. And so I related this to the use of soy sauce to people. We I only ever used 
um, this the, our local soy sauce because that's what my husband was using. If you take a bottle of soy sauce, beautiful artisanal soy sauce that's been, it's organic Japanese beans and it's been fermented for a, a year and a half in cedar barrels, and then you um, put it on. You know, oishashi is the just boiled greens um, in this in the farm kitchen, boiled greens with just soy sauce. Boiled refreshed greens, soy sauce, and then um, some katsubushi. That's a mm-hmm. we don't even necessarily put dashi in it. The classic dish is dashi flavor with soy sauce, maybe a little meaning, and then hit with katsubushi. All right. So if you put the soy sauce on this on the supermarket um, komatsuno or spinach or something, some sort of greens, mm-hmm. the soy sauce is going to be whoa! It's so delicious, and the greens are going to be zero. You know, and they just will not match. So then you're going to think, oh, I want to have some delicious greens. And so you put the farmer greens, that he, small farmer greens with the delicious soy sauce. It's so perfect. And then you hit it with that crappy katsubushi. <laughs> and, oh, that is so depressing. <laughs> so then you're going to want to get the really good katsubushi. It's just it's never just ending. Like, see, so it's, you have to. Nobody can just jump into this. And I didn't jump into this. It was uh, years in the making. And I still, like for the preserving book, or even after that, I discovered more, you know, like a different vinegar maker, the Iojozo, I was during the preserving book. There's a life-changing sesame that everybody needs to know about, Wadaman sesame. The guys at And the you t- mentioned that in your book. Oh, my God. I mean, it's, we were, we were at Serious Eats yesterday, and they're, like, drinking it. It was <laughs> so good. White, black, Where gold. Where is ours? I know. <laughs> Did they drink it all? <laughs> it's in my hotel room. I have a word with them. <laughs> but really life-changing. Seriously, this, this sesame that you can find is poor quality, cracked, um, discolored, and probably rancid. Sesame oil, I mean, it's just so horrible. You might as well just dump it through, dump it down the toilet. And what's so, I mean, what is, what should it taste like? Mm, it should taste like beautiful sesame. Just again, think about something that's in your realm of thinking. So remember those those um, big, huge cans or really cheap olive oils at the supermarket, right? And then you got the artisanal olive oil. Mm-hmm. It's like you can you can you can put an ice cream. You can take it. You can take tasters in the in the cup, right? That's what it. That's the difference. I mean, it's uh, black sesame has this sort of. Um, round and butteriness or not butteriness what was it um the and the gold is really toasty but not not um it's warm and the white is really clean and wadamon sesame so that is that's based in osaka osaka yeah it's a fifth generation company and um i met the guy at fancy food a few years ago and the white sesame oil just like blew me away, but I thought I don't need these fancy sesame seeds. We have local organic seeds, um, because the seeds, you know, there's no more sesame, no more commercial commercial sesame in Japan because um, it's been outsourced to China. Um, so he has a very small organic sesame production. Uh, he's he's a roastery, mm-hmm. um, and then he has contract farmers in three countries. There's, um, and I can't remember always which, which country has which seed. And then he brings them in. He has organic. Each farmer do, grows organically or conventionally. He brings them in in those big, huge bags. And then at in Osaka, they um, clean them and roast them. And, um, and 
we can understand about coffee, right? So the roaster, I mean, the the beans or the seeds come alive through the expertise of the roaster, mm. right? And so then he also has a selection process similar to the almond people where they bang out the, the bad almonds with a laser, with a laser air. I they have do it with no ses- idea what you're talking about, but that sounds so fun. <laughs> So he does it with sesame seeds. Can you imagine the monster <laughs> almond compared to sesame seeds? That was what just sealed the deal for me. Like, he's my best friend now. Is this so? Is this something that I can find? Yeah, here. Yeah, Japanese pantry in San Francisco and online. Yes, there's. It's expensive. I mean, let's, like, what, let's face it. What are we talking? You know, I really can't remember, but I think a, a bottle like this, which is what, three hundred mil or so, might be. 20, 25, I don't know. You know, and the fun, but the funny thing is, you know, people will pay the money for good olive oil now. And I think right. you're completely it's right. That's life changing. It's, it's been it's, this incredible shift to watch, you know, even in, even in me too. I mean, I grew up with totally crappy olive oil. Like I, I don't yeah. actually know what was in there. Yeah. Sort of like the yeah. crab yeah. meat. Yeah. Um, me too. And and now I feel like when I go to the grocery store, like I, I won't even blink an eye Mm-mm. at a, a $20, yeah. $25 price right. tag. But I do think that what, uh, at least what I find I get in return as a home cook is you don't really have to use a whole lot of it right. to achieve what you're going for. Exactly. Exactly. So and it that- almost feels like there's an economy that comes with the higher quality Absolutely. product. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I've given some to, I gave some to Daniel Ritzer. He said he had his his sesame oil open for like six months <laughs> and it never lost, lost its, it never went bad. I mean, it's got a real power of its own. I mean, you want to use it faster, but um, you're afraid to because it's so beautiful. <laughs> you don't want to use too much, but, but now it's available. So yeah, I mean, all of those ingredients, soy sauce and mirin, and the vinegar, you know, you, you use less because it has more flavor. Oh, I feel so mortified. All I can think about right now is, is my, my pantry at home where I have an open bottle of toasted sesame oil just that's been sitting in my pantry for probably six months. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now I'm deeply embarrassed. <laughs> and uh, frankly, like I probably I don't even know that I could necessarily tell you whether it was whether it's rancid or not. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah, because it's so strong. I mean, I actually hated sesame oil. And then um, I started buying organic, but it was Osawa, and they were good quality, but, but and it was better, but, and, and I, I, I would thin it with some um, organic rapeseed oil, mm-hmm. uh, canola oil. And then, but this is just totally different. And, and you want to use it. It's like the difference when I started using Mikawa Mirin which you can get through Mitoku. Um, what is you, Mitoku? Mitoku is um, one of there's the two big organic companies in Japan are Mitoku and Muso, um, Muso slash Osawa. They've brought over um, the all the artisanal Japanese ingredients in the 70s, but they repackaged. Mm-hmm. And um, Eden also does a good job. I, I think Eden is Ajinohaha, but it's a little bit thinner variety. But anyway, you can get you can get it on Amazon. Mikawa meeting best in the world that you can get that's not really super, super special, small, small place, but it changed the way I cooked. Like, I want to use meeting now. I love it. And you know, actually, I feel like, I feel like mirin is, is one of those ingredients that I feel like, you know, people are 
sort of like I'm not exactly sure mm-hmm. how to use this or mm-hmm. where to use this, at what point in the cooking process I use this. There are definitely times when I'm just like, I don't know. Um, but see, that's where Mikawa meeting taught me. We didn't have it in our kitchen. We um, use sake and, and occasionally some meeting. Um, so we did have it, but we just didn't use it very much. Um, that was my husband's way. And he actually does use it more. But when I started using Mikawa, I had various meetings. I would buy them for, you know, just testing or whatever. And I had the understanding, I developed the understanding that meetings function <laughs> is to soften the salt in miso and soy sauce. And it's there to soften the sourness of vinegar. And because it is on its own... It, it is a fairly sweet product, correct? Naturally sweet, yeah, from the fermentation. It's in the, the, it's, it's the, it's the similar process to sake making, and don't quote me on this, but um, better meetings have glutinous rice and rice, um, and that helps the saccharin, sacra, whatever process, mm-hmm. sacra, sacra, <laughs> getting to be sugarized. That understanding of the relationship is what I brought to that book, this book, Japan. Okay, so speaking of the book, I just have a couple of questions left. One is, you know, do you have a few approachable or sort of beginner-friendly recipes that are in the book that might be, you know, that might be a good starting place for cooks at home who are just starting to get their toes wet with this style of cooking? Uh There are a lot of very simple recipes in this book. Yes, there's some that have multiple ingredients, and so if your time um, is limited pick recipes that have less ingredients. And um, a couple, but what I would like to say is what are some surprise ones for me? Um, I didn't used to like dried shiitake because dried shiitake was often, you know, like simmered up and really like, I don't know, it just didn't, it was too, too something. But I started buying these donko shiitake or thick capped ones and I bought better shiitake and that's another thing that you trying to source like Japanese shiitake and mm-hmm. or or perhaps you have some local ones here I don't know anyway there's a recipe for um, cucumbers and shiitake it's called cucumbers and shiitake I think in sesame vinegar mm-hmm. and so it's got a lot of the watermelon sesame <laughs> <laughs> and gorgeous cucumbers and some really delicious vinegar meeting I think and um, I should have meeting of course and then it has um, dried uh, shiitake that have been flavored with, I think, she, uh, soy sauce and meaning. I don't have the book memorized, by the way. <laughs> um, and then there's a sweet potato dish, which does use chicken stock. Um, and it's sweet potato and that's been simmered in chicken stock with dried shiitake and some of that chatsai. You know, the chatsai is that um, the mustard stem pickle. It looks like this really oversized brain or something. It's Chinese. <laughs> and it, it's one of those Chinese ingredients that jumps into Japanese food sometimes. Like a pickled mustard green. So, 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 yeah. And, and my husband used to use it in mabodofu. And bok choy, um, including the stems, of course. And then um, you uh, hit it with some parsley. It's really delicious. And uh, oh, I, I love the natto salad too. There's a few crossover dishes mm-hmm. um, that were, you know, like the ketchup. There was a few dishes that have ketchup in I it. I noticed that. Yeah. I think there was like a shrimp fried so, rice yeah, 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 dish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, ah, oh, I should maybe freshen that up and, and use some sort of tomato sauce. And then I thought, no, I don't think I should. And so I used Muir Glen tomato sauce, uh, ketchup. 
Um, I wouldn't use homemade. But um, this is a natto salad where you have a uh, iceberg lettuce cup and uh, cubes of apple and avocado. Okay, this is not a seasonal gist. Let's, let's get over it. And also <laughs> avocados come from Mexico. There's one person apparently in Japan we've, we've found now. Uh, to get avocados? Yeah, my, my son found it, Andrew. And so we're waiting until they're in season. But, um, <laughs> so apple, avocado, um, red onion, smaller uh, pieces of red onion, of course, and then daikon sprouts, and then Parmesan cheese. Oh, wow. Yeah, now, I did not go so far as the craft thing, but um, <laughs> we had... The uh, green... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The green that was can. ubiquitous, yeah. Uh, Parmesan or Reggiano is what I use. And then you you blend up the um, Japanese mayonnaise with natto, and not kupi mayonnaise, because that's... Not kupi. Oh, my God, that's horrible stuff. <laughs> We have matsuna mayonnaise. I um, I mean, I usually make my own, but for Japanese applications, I think the Japanese style. I mean, Whole Foods is making it. Um, there's options available. I think that the French jarred one is probably the best option, frankly. But anyway, and then you put that dressing over the salad. It's quite delicious. It's so fascinating. There's nothing in particular about that that would read to me as... No. You know, quote unquote Japanese, right? But it, you know, it's a, it was a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, I suppose I would have to ask: Do you have a favorite recipe from this book? Ah, uh, favorite. There's 400 recipes, so <laughs> I, I noticed. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually, I really love the Yuba recipe. It's um, it has chrysanthemum greens and roasted shiitake and. Some enoki that have been simmered a little bit in dashi and um, and yuzu, and it's got a, a lovely dressing. Um, yuba is the you know this this soy soy milk skin that's formed um, as you're heating the soy milk for making tofu. So that's a great dish. Nancy, thank you so much. Sure, thank you for having me. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.